The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The, the issue really needs to get decided, probably from the Supreme Court's perspective, on this this matter of whether the presidency right, is an, is an office of the United States that's covered by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. In that way, um, I think they could they can preserve the ability to to challenge right those other requirements, which are very plain. Right. You're either you're either 35 or you're not. You were either born, in, um, you know, in the United States and subject to a jurisdiction thereof or or you're or you, or you weren't. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 23rd, 2023. It's another episode of Trump's Trials and Tribulations. This one recorded on December 21st in front of a live audience on YouTube and Zoom. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio was Anna Bauer, Lawfare's legal fellow and special guest, Anthony Michael Kreiss, from the Georgia State University College of Law. We talked about the 11th Circuit's denial of Mark Meadows's removal request in Fulton County. We talked about why the order may have worrisome secondary effects. And of course, we talked about that decision from the Colorado Supreme Court blocking Trump from the 2024 Republican primary ballot. We also took audience questions from our material supporters on Zoom, where you should be by becoming a material supporter to be able to submit questions to the panelists in the future, become a material supporter at lawfaremedia.org support. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Trump Trials and Tribulations, December 23rd, removal, not to federal court, but from the Colorado ballot. So we're going to talk about Mark Meadows at the 11th Circuit. We're going to talk about uh, all kinds of fun Georgia stuff. But I want to start uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court, where um, we had a uh, a flurry of briefing over the last few days on the question of whether the court should grant cert before judgment in the immunity matter that is on appeal from Judge Chutkin. Uh, Anna, bring us up to speed about what has happened. Right. So if people recall, Judge Chutkin rejected Trump's uh, arguments that he is shielded from prosecution 
uh, under a kind of novel theory of presidential immunity, trying to extend the immunity that has been recognized in the civil context to a criminal context. Uh, and, and, and Trump then appealed to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals um, and, and Jack Smith, in an effort to kind of preserve this March trial date that has been set by Judge Chutkin in the January 6th federal case, uh, kind of, you know, decided to step in and, and go ahead and ask the Supreme Court to hear the matter, uh, you know, before even the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals decides it. So the Supreme Court is now weighing whether or not to uh, grant cert or to hear the case. Um, they've not yet decided. And, and there was an expedited briefing schedule that was set. So we had Trump's team who submitted briefs saying, no, the Supreme Court shouldn't hear this case. You know, it should go in the regular kind of course of going to the intermediate appellate court, then going to the Supreme Court. They claimed that uh, Jack Smith does not have standing to, uh, uh, you know, go ahead and bring the case to the Supreme Court because they are not the uh, basically because they were not the losing party uh, in terms of who is appealing. Um, and, and then we got a response today from Jack Smith's team who said, in effect, you know, the public has an interest in a speedy trial here. The, these charges are very serious. Uh, this is a novel question of law. And also you're wrong about this, you know, standing issue because, you know, we're not appealing. Uh, we are just uh, seeking review at, from the Supreme Court as has has been done in in other cases of of great importance. Uh, they cite you know the Youngstown Steel case and um, United States versus Nixon. So these other cases where the prevailing party uh, still went ahead and, and asked for cert before judgment um, and was able to do so without any you know questions about whether they had so called standing to do so. Uh, so that's kind of a summary of what we got this week, Ben. Yeah, so there's only one interesting legal issue here, and I don't think it's very interesting. But, uh, Anthony, correct me if I'm wrong. I think Trump is just wrong on the standing question, right? So the the normal rule is that you can't appeal something that you won. The government didn't appeal this. Trump did. And all the government is asking for is for the appeal to be at the Supreme Court, not at the... DC circuit in the first instance, right? That's not, there's no standing barrier to that, right? Right. I mean, I, I mean, fundamentally, I, I, I don't think you could put it any better than you just did, right? The government is not appealing a favorable ruling. Um, they're just simply asking for the process to be expedited on the appeal that Donald Trump has decided to, to, uh, to lodge. Although I do think there is something different about the, the kind of dynamics of this case, right, than some of the other ones like United States versus Nixon or, or the Youngstown uh, sheet and tube case, which is we're dealing with a criminal um, a criminal prosecution here, of course, you know, of course, it's, um, you know, the highest interest uh, for for the public, I think, to get this done sooner rather than later and to have this all out in, in open court and whatnot. Um, but I do think that does make this a little bit different. But 
Um, ultimately, you know, I, I think these questions that we've seen from like the these uh, collection of, of a state attorneys general claiming that there's just something very, you know, partisan and unusual about this and it's untoward and the, and the court shouldn't be doing it is it's just inconsistent with history. But of, of course, the ironic part, right, is that it's inconsistent with what much of uh, Trump's DOJ did um, often seeking um um, you know, cert before judgment in in litigation that the Trump DOJ was was pursuing and, and involved in. So um, there's a bit of irony there there too. Yeah. So so how do you assess? The court set a really quick briefing schedule for this. They seem to take the special counsel's uh, request for a highly expeditious consideration, at least of the cert before judgment motion, pretty seriously. What do you expect to see from the Supreme Court, not on the merits, but on the, uh, you know, will they, do you expect them quickly to grant cert before judgment, quickly to reject it, or slowly to do one of those two things? How, how, what, what, would, what would surprise you and what would not surprise you here? Well, I, I'm not really, sh- I, <laughs> I'm really hesitant to say what would surprise me or would not surprise me, in, in large part because there is so much going on here. And in this case, I, I think we need to think about this in the broader universe of cases that are before the court now, right? Which is the court will have to deal with, right, one of these main um, statutory interpretation issues in all the January 6th prosecutions about, right, what, what it means to corruptly um, interrupt, right, a, a government, um, you know, government function. Um, at the same time, we have the Mark Meadows appeal probably coming from the 11th Circuit. Um, there's a, the immunity question. There's the Colorado Supreme Court um, disqualification issue, which will probably be appealed very quickly to the Supreme Court. Um, and and I, you know, when we've got four really major questions um, that 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 speak to the heart of our of our democracy and the meaning of of democracy um, and the rule of law and our constitutional order, all coming to the court at the same time. Um, you know, I, I often think about. Um, you know, a very famous quote from a from a Supreme Court justice in, in the mid 1950s, who you know apparently or allegedly responded to you know why why won't the court in the media aftermath of Brown versus Board of Education and desegregating public schools take up anti miscegenation statutes and and he responded well one bombshell at a time is enough um, right the court is a political institution it's a political organ it's dealing in a you know with highly salient issues in a political environment um, and I think they're going to be thinking about how to handle all these cases potentially at once um, you know kind of kind of in um, or at least they'll be considering how to how to manage all of these things so um, maybe it's to the their maybe they'll see it to their advantage to take it up quickly and and at least get rid of one of these major issues um, out from under them um, in, in short order. And maybe they'll slow walk it. And, and um, you know, maybe, I mean, I, I see, I was always of the belief that they would just let the, the DC circuit rule against Trump and then just leave it at that. Um, and, and then just deny cert and walk away. And, and that was the easiest way to, to avoid this. But um, Jack Smith is certainly not, you know, is not letting them really avoid it now. What are you expecting, Anna? What, what would surprise you and not surprise you? I, I I certainly think that the court is going to I, I wouldn't be surprised if the court takes it uh, uh, before judgment um, I and decides the question. I also would be very surprised if the court doesn't to some extent agree with uh, Judge Chutkin and, and ultimately or or rather that it may be that the court decides, you know, there is. 
uh, 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 some universe in which there is uh, absolute immunity or some type of immunity from criminal prosecution uh, uh, for a former president who committed allegedly uh, or who allegedly committed criminal acts um, in the scope of their office. But I also think that they will ultimately decide it, that that kind of doesn't matter here and that in any case, the, these are not the facts in which they would uh, decide that that immunity doctrine applies. I think that was total word salad, what I just said, but hopefully it made sense. Um, uh, but I, I I think that that is ultimately uh, kind of maybe what the outcome is here. I also think that, and we'll get to this, but it's, it is telling to me that the 11th Circuit opinion that it just came out in the context of the Mark Meadows removal um, uh, litigation, it, written by Chief Judge Pryor, a very conservative judge of the 11th Circuit, uh, dealt with this kind of similar question of, you know, obviously not in the absolute immunity context, but still had to decide whether some of these um, actions were within the scope of office and they ultimately decided that it was not. Um, and so I think that that is maybe a signal of what the Supreme Court could decide with respect to Trump and whether, you know, if there is a doctrine of immunity that applies the question of whether he's acting within the outer perimeter of the scope of his office as president. Um, so and again, we'll I think we'll get to that conversation in a minute. Yeah, you're but, cheating. You're cheating. Yeah, sorry. By going into the 11th <laughs> Circuit stuff before I'm ready. All right. I'm going to give you the answer on on the uh, uh, cert before judgment. It will be granted tomorrow. That's the answer. Uh, the Supreme Court. I don't. I, I'm not sure what the vote on the merits is going to be, but the everybody's going to agree to do this quickly, and uh, we're going to have cert before judgment before before the day is closed uh, tomorrow. Um, that's my prediction, and you can hold me to it. Um, all right, let's talk about that Eleventh Circuit ruling because, um, in the spirit of proving Ben wrong about everything, um, which you should keep in mind when, when assessing that um, uh, that cert before judgment prediction. Uh, the 11th Circuit uh, has upheld um, the um, lower court's denial of removal to Mark Meadows. This was a case that uh, one Anna Bauer, one Ben Wittes, and one Alan Rosenstein thought was gonna be pretty hard and might actually warrant uh, removal. Uh, the district court said, uh, you're, you're, you're full of shit on this, Wittes. Um, and the 11th Circuit said, you're even more full of shit than you knew because this statute does not apply to former officials. So none of the analysis that you did uh, has any relevance at all. So, Anthony, get us started on this. There's a uh, this is a pretty substantial ruling. Uh, what did the court hold, and why should we care? Yeah. So, uh, I think uh, 
first of all, it's important to, to note what who was on this panel. Um, so it was Chief Judge uh, William Pryor, who's the, one of the most conservative judges on the court, um, and two uh, of the more liberal members, um, Judge Rosenbaum, and probably the most liberal, I think, member of the court, the, the newest member, uh, Judge Nancy Abudu. Um, and so the, the question that they had before them was whether or not the text of the removal statute uh, includes former officers of the United States um, and, and not just protects um, current incumbent federal officers, uh, federal workers, uh, federal contractors. Um, when, when they're sued or when they are criminally prosecuted and and seek removal, um, the you know I I think that most people thought that you know that that it just naturally makes sense that if somebody's conduct um, is being targeted in a suit of some kind that is related to their federal employment, even though that they are former federal employees or fe former uh, federal officers, that the statute would would cover that because the statute was really meant to protect. Federal, uh, you know, federal personnel very broadly, um, but of course the statute does not expressly say current or former, and so um, the the Eleventh Circuit was very much interested in this question about whether the lack of an express inclusion in the in the statutory text of former uh, federal officers being entitled to removal um, meant that that's in fact you know how it should you know that the statute should operate right that former uh, officials should not be able to remove criminal cases into to federal court at all um and the you know, I think the court was very um, straightforward about this point. They, you know, Judge Pryor in oral um, in oral arguments, I think was pretty um, transparent that he just thought that the text said what the text said, um, and that the, the that the lack of a, an express requirement or an express inclusiveness of, of former officials just meant that they're out. Um, I think that the liberal judges and they this was this came out in a concurring opinion. Um, we're a little bit more concerned about the, the amount of harassment that might come about um, if former federal officials could be prosecuted and and you know brought into state court and tried in state court for crimes related to their federal service. Um, primarily, if that uh, prosecution was just uh, motivated by a policy difference, um, and so they definitely expressed some issues and some hesitancy there, and and thought that Congress should amend it. But I think ultimately the the other important part of this is that despite the fact that the Eleventh Circuit said former officials cannot seek removal of their criminal cases into federal court, that even if they could, um, that, that the lower court's ruling here um, was correct, that Mark Meadows did, did not engage in activities within his uh, purview as White House chief of staff when he was involved or allegedly involved in meddling here in Georgia, that the White House chief of staff has no obligation, no duty in overseeing elections and elections and results, um, that the, the former uh, chief of staff as chief of staff had no uh, right or under uh, under federal law, under the Hatch Act, to engage in partisan electioneering, which is uh, much of what he was doing. And there is no right or there's no uh, privilege of a federal employee in the, you know, the White House, and particularly the White House chief of staff, to engage in a conspiracy to overturn an election, and so even if uh, the you know even if the the statute applied to Mark Meadows, um, it, you know he, he would not be able to seek refuge under it. And I think part of what what that you know what's going on there is that the court, um, in, in many respects, is insulating itself potentially from Supreme Court review um, to decide particularly right whether the former officials get covered. Um, because I think that would be a question very ripe for cert. Although I think this case is probably not a good. 
vehicle for for deciding that ultimately. And and the court's explanation of how it would not apply to Mark Meadows, even if their their statutory interpretation ruling was wrong, I think is is kind of a way to deter the deter the court um, from seeing this as a good vehicle for for that that question. Anna, you, before I launch into my anxieties about this decision, uh, your thoughts on it? I mean, Ben, I think that you and I probably agree that uh, the the holding, the part of the judge, the opinion that requires a holding that former the statute does not apply to former federal officials, I think just cannot be right and is not right. Um, I think it frustrates the purpose of the statute. If I if I were on the 11th Circuit, which I'm very much am not and and will never be, um, I, I would not you know uh, join in that opinion in terms of as far as that part of the opinion goes. Um, but I I certainly think that the alternative grounds that they laid out. I mean, you know, Ben, I think that we as as you said, we have uh, said before that Mark Meadows had the strongest case out of any of the. Fulton County defendants uh, for removal. Um, but I ultimately think that it, they came down on the right side of whether or not he should be able to remove, uh, probably, in my view. Um, but I am really interested to see if he decides to appeal. It's as far as I'm aware, as of, you know, right before uh, recording this, there has been no notice of appeal yet. Um, I wonder if Meadows is considering, you know, what it would mean if he did appeal to the Supreme Court, if they did grant cert and and actually decide the case on the merits um, and then ultimately make a, you know, make a decision on that second part, which is whether he was acting within the scope of his official duties that could affect his uh, a defense but you know substantive defenses that he intends to raise uh later on down the line whether or not it's in federal court or before judge mcafee in state court so i think that he has uh you know a decision to make here about the uh risks of of potentially trying to appeal um and so we'll see but i i really don't think that the part of the judgment that is about former uh, federal officers being able to remove. I, I just don't think that's right. Um, but what do you think, Ben? Well, so let's start with what I think is the easy part. The part about form not applying to former officials is just not not just not right. It's crazy because it's kind of textualism run amok. It's 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 a bunch of you know, it's a uh, pardon me. I, I mean, Judge Pryor is a smart guy. But he, he looked at this and said, wow, the statute's in, in the present tense. Uh, you know, he's not an official, therefore it can't apply. And if you take that logic seriously, then the state of Texas can indict Joe Biden the day that he leaves office for facilitating abortions, you know, under their nutty uh, law. And, um, and Joe Biden former president of the United States cannot remove that to federal court on grounds that, you know, he was acting in his commander in chief authority uh, and, you know, providing health care to U.S. service personnel. That's the import of that opinion. It simply cannot be right. Um, now, it, it may be 
that it's, uh, you know, that it's a kind of, you know, read the law strictly though the heavens may fall kind of thing. But I, I, I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't, you know, give aid and comfort to it as a reasonable ruling because it produces an attractive result in this context. It's a very, uh, you know, the idea that any state, any state prosecutor can haul a senior federal official into local court uh, the moment they leave office and they can't get the, the a reasonable forum for now, Fonnie Willis is not a crazy person, and she's not, in my uh, opinion, pursuing a vendetta. But there are local officials who do pursue vendettas against federal officials, and I think the the idea that the idea, the whole purpose of this statute is to prevent that. And I do think vindicating the purpose of the statute is valuable here. And I'm frankly a little bit appalled that the panel kind of agrees on a on a on a theory that you know maybe gets the right answer vis-a-vis Mark Meadows but uh but as uh Shannon points out in the chat really empowers like the people like Ken Paxton uh in Texas and I think it's very dangerous and we should be wise to it on the other question which is assuming that that they're wrong on that. Does Mark Meadows get a removal or not? As we have discussed, I think it's actually a, a pretty hard question. Um, it's um, if Mark Meadows were a junior secretary and, uh, you know, had been like all he was doing was kind of setting up appointments for the president. I would say, yeah, of course he gets immunity. Um, um, you know, uh, an arm of the president and nothing more. And the fact that those were personal appointments or in his capacity as a candidate, I wouldn't hold a secretary to that. Now, constitutionally, it's pretty hard to argue that Mark Meadows is differently situated from, say, Rosemary Woods. But we all kind of feel like he is because he's a he's a grown up and he's a former member of congress and he's a um you know a big shot in his own right and so i don't know what the right answer to this question is um but i'm sure that this theory is not it and i do worry about the danger of the danger to among other things biden administration officials um, the message, it seems to me, that the 11th Circuit has sent is don't resign. You know, if you fear state officials, stay in office. I don't know. Am I am I am I overdoing it, Anthony? No, I don't. I mean, I don't think so. I mean, so so there was a decision on a, in a, in, on a case in uh, called Pate um, that that came down back in October uh, that had a kind of similar flavor of a, of, of question about um, prosecutions related to uh, the service of former federal officials. Um, you know, basically, this guy was was harassing former federal officials by uh, filing these false liens, and and there was a question of whether, um, on account of their service, which is the term of the statute, meant federal former federal officials, or it, it only meant current ones. And and the court, in a, what I think, in a very similar 
um, very stringent, overly stringent form of textualism said, well, no, former former officials don't count. Like it has to be a current situation. And I said that, you know, Bonnie Willis might be very well tempted to lean into that argument because, you know, it's it's an easy winner. Um, but I think, you know, strangling or strangling text um, in a, this kind of overdone textualism um, that doesn't really serve the purpose of the statute is is a bad form of of judging and a bad form of lawmaking. Um, and I think so, too, here. I think I think it's the I think it's a bad decision. Um, but I also think right, that ultimately, too. Um, I don't, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it depends on, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm not entirely certain how much the venue would weigh on a, on a state prosecutor. Um, right. Because it's not, of course, it's not an immunity for a prosecution. It's just, uh, it's just uh, providing a, a more neutral venue for the prosecution. And, and, and let me just, let me just explain that for people who don't have an intuitive understanding of that. This is not about whether Mark Meadows gets tried for the crimes alleged in the indictment. This is about whether he gets tried in Fulton County Court or whether he gets tried in federal court for the same offenses under state law. And the um, there's a very good piece by one Anna Bauer uh, on Lawfare about what actually turns on this question. Uh, that I refer you to if you have uh, any uh, interest in diving deep. We we wrote that piece together and and with Alan Rosenstein as well. So it wasn't just yeah, but me. the relevant portion <laughs> is by you. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I, I mean, but that's the thing, right? It still comes down to prosecutorial discretion. I mean, of course, I don't trust. I mean, I don't trust every prosecutor across the country to not be partisanly motivated and and right try to um, indict you know former officials of any administration just because of policy disagreements. So, um, you know, you know, I, I do think the statute is wrong or was has been wrongly interpreted. I, I do think it should apply to former officials. Um, you know, but I, I I'm not certain that like you know all is you know the sky is going to fall as a consequence of of the chain or you know limiting the venue options. Um, although I, I, I think Congress should make it very clear that that the statute applies to former officials, because I think I think it is important that if they are acting in in their um, you know official duties, they should be able to remove even if they've left office. Because you know, of course, you don't want to dissuade people from from going into federal office or serving the public um, if they think they're going to be liable to suits in very unfavorable venues. Um, I, I think that's that can't be that can't be right. Um, but the other, yeah, I think the other thing too is, you know, with with Mark Meadows, um, you know, I was initially uh, kind of hem and hawed on whether or not he was entitled to removal because I thought, well, a lot of the things he was doing um, were in fact um, things that make sense: checking in on meetings, keeping the president on time, even though there were other things that he he did that certainly were not related to his job. Um, you know, and I think it's a real question, uh, you know, in some of the the bigger stuff, right? It was you know. Um, you know, whether Mark Meadows was acting under the color of law, right, when he came down to Fulton County um, and or to Cobb County, rather, to check in on signature matching. Um, was he acting under color of law when he was connecting, um, you know, Donald Trump with with Brad Raffensperger? I'm not really sure he was, but he certainly was doing things within the scope of his of his work there. So, I mean, I think it was a really close question. But right. The, the real interesting thing here about the RICO charge is it's like. Right, none of these underlying acts have to be necessarily, you know, everyone proven, right? Because the the real problem for Mark Meadows is that he was in part of a part of a conspiracy, um, and so you know, 
I, I think it's really complicated in part because Mark Meadows was doing things that seem to be on the outer limits, if not outside his, his scope of his duties as chief of staff. But fundamentally, he's being charged with a conspiracy that that clearly would never be within the scope of his duties. Um, so I think it's just really complex and it's, it's messy, again, in large part of, of just by virtue of not only what's being alleged um, in terms of these kind of important, uh, you know, uh, data points of conduct, um, but but fundamentally he's being charged with 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 this conspiracy based uh, charge, which I I think kind of just makes it a lot a lot messier of a situation than it would be for many other cases. So a reminder to everybody that uh, unlike some other defendants in this case, uh, Mark Meadows is represented by highly professional counsel. Uh, uh, George Terwilliger, who's a former deputy uh, attorney general. Um, Bob Bittman, I believe, is on that uh, team. It's a it's a very strong team uh, uh, at McGuire Woods. And actually, their briefs are a pleasure to read and uh, don't have any of the zaniness of some of the other stuff that you get in some of the Fulton County cases. Uh, I'm curious what you guys think their next move is. One thing uh, you know, I don't see why there's a reason why they shouldn't ask for cert, right? No, I don't think so. I mean, I would if I were them. I mean, what's, I mean, what's the what's the loss? I mean, it's so. I mean, the thing is, right? It's not as if the. So I think it's important for everybody to remember too, right? That as this litigation is is continuing on in the federal courts, so too is the movement in state court, right? So the federal removal statute, as the as the kind of threshold question. Um, is litigated about whether or not Mark Meadows can be his case can be removed. The proceedings in state trial or the state trial court are are going on. Um, so I you know I don't see any big difference um, in terms of you know what's going on in state court. So you might as well give it a shot. Um, full well knowing that you're going to have to continue to litigate in state court anyway. So, you know, it's not, it's not as if he has a really big decision about, right, whether to kind of take something off pause in, in Fulton County Court and 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 change strategies. I, I think, you know, you might as well, you might as well try it and then just kind of focus on the, the nuts and bolts of, of the motions practice in state court. I think that's right. What do you think, Anna? I mean, I don't know. I think on one hand, that's right. But on the other hand, it's like I i kind of alluded to this before, but, you know, it's already bad enough that you've got Bill Pryor, a, a widely respected conservative judge, saying that Meadows was not acting within the scope of his office. Uh, if Meadows expects to raise a supremacy clause immunity uh, substantive defense down the road, which is kind of a part of the inquiry here, but a, a little bit of a different kind of you know standard. Um, but if, if he intends to raise that and hang his hat on having a supremacy clause immunity defense, uh, whether it is because he can raise that in state court before Judge McAfee, if the case stays there, he can raise it in federal court if the case is removed. But I mean, I don't know that you would necessarily want the Supreme Court if you feel if you're concerned that, you know, the Supreme Court might grant cert and then might end up you know, deciding the question of whether Meadows was acting within the scope of his office. I think that there is in the back of your mind a concern about, you know, 
that that prejudices your arguments, uh, you know, before Judge McAfee or or whoever um, about about your substantive defense um, or even, you know, potential jurors who are following the case. Uh, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily something that would stop Meadows. And I think maybe on balance, the. Uh, if Meadows has more of a kind of delay factor uh, in in terms of, you know, wanting to delay the proceedings and isn't someone like, for example, John Eastman, who wants to go ahead and get to trial, then certainly going, you know, going to Supreme Court would be your logical next step because you're trying to draw things out. Um, so I don't know. I, do you guys, I mean, do you think that that's something or nothing or what? Tell me if I'm wrong or if I'm right, Ben. Oh, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think the, um, this is a case that is unbelievably more complicated than the federal case because these different defendants actually have different interests. And, you know, it's clear to me that Trump made the judgment, or rather uh, Steve Sadow, Trump's crocodile boot-wearing lawyer in, in Fulton County, made the judgment that he actually likes his chances in front of uh, uh, Judge McAfee better than he uh, likes his chances in front of the judge, uh, the federal court judge whom he might get instead. Meadows has clearly made a different judgment um, why that is, is not obvious to me. Like, um, uh, I mean, maybe the judgment is, uh, Scott McAfee seems like a very fair young man, uh, and we don't know who we would get in federal court. But the point is, people are making very different judgments about where they want to be, and and they're making different judgments about all kinds of things, how fast they want the trial to move. And, you know, that makes this case just wildly different from the federal January 6th case where you have one defendant and one prosecutor and you have uh, a very linear confrontation between the interests of the federal government and the interests of the defendant. And similarly, the same thing in South Florida, although you have this this wackadoodle judge who's a kind of actor of her own. But, um, you know, you have you've got a real in South in, in Fulton County, you've got a real multiplicity of actors and none of them files in their briefs, their motives. You know, I'm doing this to try to put a little bit of pressure on the prosecutor to cut a better deal with me based on the back channel discussions we're having about a plea. Nobody writes that in the briefs. So you have to kind of figure it out. And it's it's completely non-obvious. So yeah, I agree with you. It's a it's a um I think the technical term is is an opaque mess. What do you think, Anthony? No, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think I think Anna's spot on too, right? There's a there's a PR dynamic to this as much as there is just a kind of ordinary um, you know, criminal law defense strategy here. Um, you know, getting uh, han being handed a loss by the Supreme Court would be pretty pretty devastating. Um, you know, on, on the other hand, you know, I, I, I guess if, you know if I'm trying to gain this out, um, you know, am I more like if if they grant cert 
am I more likely to win than not? I mean, I, I think maybe my thinking would be there's a really good chance or at least a decent chance that I will win somehow um, if they grant cert. And so maybe the, the 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 real loss that I'm facing is a denial of cert, in which case I can kind of escape the bad PR. Um, but if I get the Supreme Court to grant cert and then I lose on the merits, then then I have a massive PR problem in addition to um, you know a potential legal problem in the sense of uh, just like Anna said right where there's there's now ink spilled by the justices that is um, you know kind of disfavoring their um, you know that disfavors the um, you know Mark Meadows some of his defenses in that'll have to lodge in state court but. Um, you know, who knows, like you said, uh, who knows what, what's going on in their head, if it's the jury pool that they want, or if they're just trying to delay things, or if they really wanted a federal judge to to hear some of their, their federal immunity defenses. I mean, it's it's really hard to say. I, I, I have a hard time figuring out, um, you know, what Mark Meadows really wants out of this, except for the fact that I, I assume he thought a federal court in, in Georgia or the 11th Circuit would be much more favorable to his some of his immunity uh, claims down the road. Um, but it seems like now, right, that even the 11th Circuit wouldn't, wouldn't be a particularly favorable uh, circuit for, for those claims either. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, 
big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. All right. Uh, so let's move on to another case that appears to be headed toward the Supreme Court, which is the Colorado Supreme Court's decision on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. We had, we're going to go a little easy on this one today because we had an entire hour-long discussion of it yesterday, which I incorporate here by reference and refer you all to, but we've got a different group of people here. So we may as well uh, chat about it a little. Anna, give us a, a, a sense of where we are with that for those who missed yesterday and and for whom Section 3 of the 14th Amendment sounds like, uh, I don't know, Greek. Right. So this is a case that uh, is a Colorado case. Uh, it, it involves uh, uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And the question is whether under that section of the Constitution uh, can is Donald Trump uh, uh, qualified for office, an office of the United States um, as someone who has been potentially alleged to uh, have, you know, uh, participated in an insurrection 
information uh, related to the events of January 6th. Uh, the trial court judge in, in Colorado ultimately decided that Donald Trump uh, did uh, incite insurrection or participate in insurrection, uh, but that he, basically he as as that the office of the presidency is not an officer of the United States. And so therefore, uh, the the section of the Constitution did not apply. Um, it, it then now has just recently gone to the Colorado Supreme Court. Uh, and in a four to three decision, the, the judges on that court ultimately determined that uh, yes, uh, the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does disqualify Trump from the office of the presidency and that he should then, you know, be disqualified from being on the state's ballots in the, the primary and the general election. However, that decision is stayed uh, pending Supreme Court review if Trump uh, should Trump decide to ask for uh, Supreme Court of the United States to review the decision uh, that stay is, as I understand it, and and Ben and Anthony, correct me if I'm wrong, it's it, the decision is stayed until January 4th, uh, and, and it is then stayed thereafter as so long as Trump uh, files, uh, you know, a petition to the Supreme Court of the United States by January 4th. Is that correct? Yep. Right. And and so and of course, what's what's really interesting about this decision as well is that although it was a four to three decision, uh, the judges who dissented did not you know, disagree that Trump uh, it wasn't was someone who participated or incited insurrection. Uh, they you know, had some different kind of opinions on whether or not Section three of the 14th Amendment is self-executing. Uh, they had some different opinions on the the kind of minutia of, of Colorado state law. Um, but it, so it, it was very interesting that, you know, a majority of this court, uh, state Supreme Court had decided basically um, that Donald Trump was an insurrectionist, uh, at least as far as that term applies under um, uh, Section three of the 14th Amendment. So I think that's a good summary. Um, but uh, the two of you, please jump in if I missed anything there that is that is relevant. So the one thing I, I do think that's interesting um, is I I have had this brief inclination of maybe Donald Trump won't actually appeal this decision um, because the likelihood of Donald Trump winning Colorado um, in the general election in particular um, is is nil. And, um, you know, now to strike him from the primary ballot, um, he can play the victim card and he can also force his the other contenders in the Republican primary to make a decision about whether they will contest um, the the primary in Colorado, and so and not only not only could he play into the the victimhood kind of well the victimhood narrative that he likes to play, but he can use it to pit himself or to pit his um, the other Republican uh, contenders in the nominate in the primary race to um, kind of fight this out with him or against him, um, and I think that could be probably very valuable. Um, you know, I think we would be in a very different scenario, right? If if someone in Georgia litigated this in the Georgia Supreme Court, um, right, said no, Donald Trump is ineligible to to be listed on the Georgia you know Georgia uh, ballot. So, um, you know, that I, I think there might be some political incentive to let this rest um, and then just 
you know, from his perspective, hope um, no truly competitive state um, would, you know, or, or even more states for that matter, um, would go down that route. So, so it seems to me that has certain dangers because like the Minnesota Supreme Court uh, kicked it down the road, but it didn't rule on the merits of it. And if you let this go back to the Minnesota Supreme Court with a you know, with the Colorado court as precedent, admittedly not a binding precedent, but not a repudiated one either. Um, maybe you end up in a crisis in the spring when Trump is clearly the nominee. And all of a sudden, the Minnesota Supreme Court says, you know, gosh, um, I guess the issue's ripe now. And, and, Boy, our, our our sister court in Colorado says, you know, he's disqualified and we follow that. And then you have a much tighter time frame for adjudication. And by the way, the consequences if you lose are really dire. Well, I mean, here's the thing. You and I care about and Anna. We care about, you know, stability and in the law and stability in our political order. And right. Those are things that most people value. Donald Trump thrives in chaos. So I'm not really certain that, you know, the timing would would matter to him, because I think ultimately, from his perspective, right, if, if you're likely to win at the Supreme Court, you then you roll the dice and see what Minnesota, the Minnesota Supreme Court does. And then you force the United States Supreme Court's hand, um, you know, in the middle of the summer um, and maybe eke out a, a legal victory in we'll say June, right, in a kind of an emergency scenario um, that that might be a v- otherwise very um, grim few months of, of legal news for Donald Trump because of the various proceedings that will be going on, right? So so there might be some you know virtue from his perspective of of you know you know uh, of of getting a a clear victory from the Supreme Court, perhaps reversing a Minnesota Supreme Court out of that chaos than 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 doing it from the Colorado Supreme Court. I don't I don't know, but um, you know, I don't think anything Donald Trump generally does or the you know the legal teams by and large with a you know with I think the exception of, of Georgia in particular down here, um, you know, his legal team doesn't always do the thing that I think is the most reasonable, logical and and thoughtful. And so, you know, it's it's anyone's guess what what he does, but I but I'm I'm not necessarily sure again that it's in his interest to have this case be the one um, to 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 appeal and to have it settled sooner rather than later. I'm not I'm not sure that's to his his immediate benefit. Do either of you know if there has been a litigation on Trump's ballot access in any of the the battleground states? I know there's you know pro se defendants who've been filing things all over the country, but I mean a serious effort. Um, and, you know, I, I assume they picked Colorado because the state law and Minnesota because the state law claims were were favorable. But eventually this thing only matters if it gets stands to get Trump struck in in states that he could actually win. Does anybody do we have any sense of whether there's been any serious effort in those states? I don't have a sense, but I will check the Lawfare Section 3 litigation tracker, uh, which might which might give me a better sense of whether uh, there is, uh, which is, Ben, maybe this is a good time to uh, uh, let everyone know where they can, can find that litigation yes, tracker. Yes, there is a Lawfare uh, uh, Section 3 litigation tracker. 
which has been discovered by the mainstream media, by the way, and has recently been discussed on on by Jill Lepore on the political scene, the New Yorker podcast, and it's been featured in New York Times articles. So everybody's talking about the uh, uh, the litigation tracker. So yeah, I mean, I, I think the really interesting question, if Anthony is right, is um, that, you know, maybe it's not in Trump's interest to appeal from Colorado. What are the next states uh, that the crew folks or the free speech for the people folks are likely to target that would force an appeal. All right. Uh, we are getting ready to go to uh, um, the Q&A, uh, to, to audience questions. Uh, we're going to start with Josh, who wants me to read his question. Will the D.C. Circuit panel holding that Trump is not immune from civil suit for his actions on January 6th have any bearing on the Supreme Court's deliberation if they decide not to wait for the D.C. Circuit on the question of his immunity from criminal prosecution? So I will give an initial thought on this, and then uh, if either of the two of you have additional thoughts, please jump in. So... Uh, first of all, as a formal matter, the D.C. Circuit can never bind the Supreme Court. Uh, it can merely influence the Supreme Court by the force of its reasoning. Uh, in this case, uh, there is some reason to expect that that might happen, and that is that the uh, that at least two of the judges who who are on this opinion, uh, Chief Judge Serena Vasan and uh, Greg Katsas, are among the most uh, respected judges of their political persuasions around. Um, and the fact that they and um, Judge Brown are, are kind of all on the same page about this, I think does carry a certain moral weight. Um, the bigger issue, in my view, is that the difference between a criminal case and a civil case is enormous. And the threshold issue for the Supreme Court is going to be, does anything in the civil realm affect our judgment of what immunity looks like if it exists at all in the criminal realm? And I suspect those are a kind of fish, not neither fish nor fowl. You can have very, very broad immunity in the civil realm and none in the criminal realm. And I think that's a more... A, more, a deeper concern going to be than than the Supreme Court's respect for this panel decision. But look, if any panel decision is going to influence the way the Supreme Court did, the fact that the D.C. Circuit took a year and basically came to a unanimous, very cross ideological view of this is, you know, that potentially carries some weight. I'm curious if either of you disagree with that. I see heads shaking. Um, Nathan writes, um, a question for Anna. Is it fair to assume you're working on a potential podcast interview with Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis? And what are some of the questions you would ask her? Uh, we're hitting a sore spot here, but Anna, uh, 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 express your, this is, you know, airing of grievances here. Uh, Nathan, we are working on it. 
We have worked on it. We are trying to convince Fonnie Willis to come on our podcast. So Jeff DeSantis, if you are listening to this, email me back. Uh, <laughs> um, no, we would absolutely love to have the district attorney on uh, to, on our podcast. Um, it hasn't been something that has, has worked out so far, but we're hopeful that in the future she will join us at some point. She has recently done some interviews with the, the AJC and, and I believe the AP last week as well. So Fonnie Willis, it's Lawfare's time to shine. Uh, come and join us on our podcast. Um, in terms of what questions I would ask, um, I, I think it would really just depend on what's going on in the case at the moment. Um, and I think that probably a lot of the questions I, I would uh, also ask as well would be things that I might get uh, not much of an answer on. But, um, you know, I I would love to know, uh, for example, what went into some of the decisions around, uh, you know, people who were recommended for indictment, but then the district attorney declined to to prosecute. Um, there's 19 co-defendants, or there were 19 co-defendants in Fulton County, but there were a lot uh, more people who are unindicted co-conspirators. That's definitely not a question that I would ever get uh, an answer to on the record, um, but I think it would be really interested. I would be really interested in knowing um, what other questions would I ask Bonnie Willis? I think right now, uh, one thing that's on my mind is uh, what's going on with the Trevion uh, Cootie situation. Um, uh, is it, you know, what is is happening is there going to be a, a motion to revoke bond uh could there be potential uh forthcoming uh, new charges um so those are just a few things off the top of my head anthony are there any questions that you would ask Fonnie willis at at this time as someone who's been cut for or following this case very closely well <clears throat> first of all i would today she was hanging out with Shaq, so i kind of i kind of want to know uh she had some great shoes and a gingerbread uh, sweatshirt that said, what did it say? It said, it said, oh, snap. And I'm like, I just want to hang out with her. So maybe I don't have deep, thoughtful questions as much as I just want to like hang out with her and Shaq. Um, but if I were to ask a, a, a question, I mean, I, I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the, the biggest thing I would be curious about is, you know, what is, you know, what's her actual plan um, you know, in terms of Jeff Clark and Mark Meadows, like I, and I know that's the one she will never answer, but that's what I really want to know because right now, and any, any big conspiracy Rico case, we all know, like there's the big fish that they really want to get. And then there's the, the other folks that they're, um, you know, more interested in turning into state's evidence. And so, um, you know, I think Rudy Giuliani and, and Donald Trump are certainly right. The big fish that they want to have at trial ultimately, but then, you know, I'm, I'm less certain about Mark Meadows, John Eastman, um, and, and, um, and Jeff Clark, like where do they fit in that, in that kind of that scheme or that, um, you know, that scale of big fish to middlemen that, that they just want to, to have evidence from. So that, that would be my, my big question. All right, Ruth, the floor is yours. Well, this is probably a simple question. If the Colorado um, case is appealed to the Supreme Court, and I've heard people discuss that possibly the court could say something like the eligibility regarding insurrection should be determined by the voters, would that have an impact on determination of eligibility for other factors such as age or place of birth? 
Anthony, do you want to take this one? Yeah, so I think I think that's where this the the issue really needs to get decided, probably from the Supreme Court's perspective on this this matter of whether the presidency right is an is an office of the United States that's covered by Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. In that way, um, I think they could they can preserve the ability to to challenge right those other requirements, which are very plain. Right, you're either you're either thirty five or you're not. You were either born in um, you know in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, or or you're or you or you weren't. Um, and so they can avoid that kind of slippery slope. And then just say, well, the presidency doesn't get covered under the 14th Amendment by its plain text and, and they're done. So I suspect if the court does take this and, and resolves it, that they'll be able to resolve it in that or they'll try to resolve it in that way so that they don't create those other kinds of questions down the road. Um, and they still kind of limit um, a ruling favorable to Trump in, in a way that um, they can say is you know not pro-Trump or not anti-Trump, but just uh, faithful to the constitutional text. All right. Uh, Jared asks the critical Eileen Cannon nightmare scenario question. Uh, in the classified documents case, if it happens, if the jury returns a guilty verdict, could Judge Cannon render a judgment notwithstanding the verdict, overturning the jury conviction and entering a judgment of not guilty? If she does that, is it appealable by the prosecution without violating the Fifth Amendment? Would that lead to restoring the jury's verdict or a new trial? I think the answer to this question is really simple. Yes, she can issue a directed verdict. No, it is not appealable. A verdict a verdict of acquittal is never appealable. Uh, and um, the only thing that gets in the way of her ability to do that is judicial conscience uh, to whatever extent that has a claim. Uh, am I wrong about that? These are moments where I'm glad I don't teach crim law because I can just say, I have no idea. <laughs> I believe that that this is a classic double jeopardy question uh, and there is nothing that prevents that except the, the ridicule of uh, public opinion. But I'm... If somebody who knows more crim pro than I do thinks otherwise, I would be interested to know. Yeah, this is where I wish that I took crim pro adjudication, not just crim pro investigations. Um, but I, I so my only question been on that, on what you just said is because I think the question was, if the jury returns a verdict, can she then enter a judgment and enter a directed verdict, notwithstanding that? I typically you uh, move for a directed verdict before the jury, you know, renders its own verdict. So I, I mean, I just procedurally, I'm not really sure if you can, if a, if if that if it would work where you know a jury actually returns a verdict and then Judge Cannon says, "Oh, sorry, I'm I'm gonna," you know, right? But I think again, I'm talking out of my ass here, but I think the answer is. A judgment notwithstanding the verdict is a judgment of acquittal. And once you have been acquitted, first of all, an acquittal is not appealable. Uh, an acquittal on the evidence is not appealable. And secondly, once you've been acquitted, you can't be tried again. Um, that's the essence of double jeopardy. And yeah, so I think I, that's right. I think, I think the answer is 
if Judge Cannon wants to flagrantly violate her oath, there's nothing that actually prevents her from doing that. The problem with it and the reason that we don't spend all of our time fretting about this possibility is that you would actually have to justify that. You'd have to like kind of write an opinion that says the prosecution presented X evidence and Y evidence and Z evidence. And I find that no reasonable juror jury could find that this satisfies the elements of the offense. And presumably the nature of the case the government is going to present is going to make an opinion like that extremely difficult to write. But Look, you know, there are a lot of Southern white people who didn't go to prison because jurors or judges did things like that. So it's, you know, you know, not I mean, during the civil rights era. So it's not like I don't want to pretend it's, you know, that kind of it's not jury nullification. It's judicial nullification, granting motions that are completely uh, un merited, but that aren't appealable. Okay, so now uh, John Hawkinson is telling me that federal rule of criminal procedure 29D3 says that an appellate court can reverse the judgment of acquittal and the trial court must proceed with the new trial unless the appellate court orders otherwise. Uh, So maybe I'm full of shit on this. How about this? I'm going to look into it and uh, figure it out for next week. And I will report back. We won't be here next week, but we will figure it out. Well, after maybe the, the week after. Yeah. Maybe we won't mm-hmm. be here next week. All right. Jeff asks, will the very real possibility Trump may be convicted in the January 6th case affect how the Supreme Court decides the 14th Amendment disqualification issue? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Do either of you? You got us stumped on that one. I mean, uh, you know, remember, there are nine justices there. They can be affected by very different things. Which of them look forward to things that might happen is a tricky business. None of them will admit that, but uh, it's not crazy. All right. Josh asks, if Meadows wants delay, wouldn't asking for en banc review before asking for cert provide more delay? Anthony? No. Um, and here's here's the quick answer why. Um, so, right, the part of the, the decision from the 11th Circuit rested on that decision that I talked about called Pate, um, which had to deal with a different statute with um, a former federal f- former federal official. That decision was heard by the 11th Circuit on Bonk. So, you know, I, I think as Judge Pryor would go, um, as Judge Pryor went in this case, as the you know the majority of the 11th Circuit went in that Pate decision, so too they would go here. Um, and and so I think right again, ultimately the the most important point to to reiterate here is that the proceedings in the state court are still going on no matter what's happening in federal court. So so you know the question of delay, um, you know, it's kind of it's it's really a question of not so much delaying anything that's happening in state court, but delaying how long he still has to litigate in federal court, which is only to his disadvantage and to to, to nobody else's. So I don't think that on um, bonk review is, is likely to be asked for, and I don't think it would help him whatsoever. I think it would only just hand him another defeat. 
All right. Last question. This one has an easy answer, fortunately, unlike those directed verdict questions. If the Colorado ruling stands and isn't appealed or isn't heard by the SCOTUS, and if Trump wins the election, what happens? Is he not the president of Colorado? All right. Um, so the answer to that question is simple. Uh, you don't, you know, sometimes people have been elected without even appearing on the ballots in certain states. Uh, the Electoral College is a national institution and it elects the president of the country, not the president of any individual state. Uh, and so, you know, I don't think John Breckenridge appeared on the ballot in every country, in every in every uh, state in the country in 1860. He uh, was a regional candidate. He got regional support. But Abraham Lincoln was the president. I don't think Abraham Lincoln probably appeared on the ballot in South Carolina either. But he was the president of the country anyway. Anybody have any? So in other words, if Trump wins, he gets to be president of Colorado. Uh, even if he's in prison and Colorado didn't have him on the ballot. Although I think what you would see is the first executive order that he issues would be challenged and whoever had an adverse um, you know, interest there would just say this executive order is not valid because Donald Trump is not validly president of the United States. So I think the litigation would pop up again. Um, I don't think it'd be successful at that point. Right. Um, but, but I think you'd see I think you'd see people still pushing that question, even though he would, in fact, be president of, of, of everybody or over everybody. Anna, you get the last word today. Well, I, I mean, I think I agree with Anthony, but I actually have a different question that I want to ask before we leave. That's a question for the panelists. Can I do All that? Right. OK. OK. So we've talked we talked earlier about Mark Meadows and the uh, opinion by the 11th Circuit. Something that we didn't talk much about, but Anthony just referenced was Judge Rosenbaum's concurring opinion, uh, which was quite interesting because. Although she agreed with Judge Pryor in his, you know, kind of uh, majority opinion or the opinion for the court, uh, she wrote separately to express her concern about the idea that former federal officers could not remove under uh, 28 U.S.C. 1442, the removal statute. Uh, and she, it was a very interesting concurrence because she kind of said, oh, I have this nightmare scenario in my head in which someone leaves office. And Ben, as you kind of referenced, it would be a situation where as soon as someone leaves office, they're indicted by, you know, a very uh, aggressive state prosecutor who wants to, uh, you know, prosecute the enforcement of unpopular federal law. Um, and so she kind of implores Congress in this opinion to change the law. Uh, what do you two think the appetite for that kind of legislative reform would be within, you know, the current Congress that we have? And if there was some kind of reform, I mean, I think the answer to this is maybe no, because typically laws are prospective rather than, you know, retroactive and and that kind of thing. And it would depend on how the law is drafted. But could we have a situation in which any change to this law would affect what's going on you know, with the, these removal cases and the criminal cases and, you know, whether someone like Mark Meadows might have a uh, an argument that, oh, well, now I can remove that kind of thing. 
I think the answer is probably no appetite to touch it right now because it's probably too charged. And certainly, um, I think anything that would be put in there would would have an express exclusion for Mark Meadows in order for Democrats to support it. Um, but I that, that the one quick thing I'll say is I'm very sympathetic to that concurring opinion and what Judge Rosenbaum and Judge Abudu signed on to um, in terms of asking Congress or you know encouraging Congress to fix it. But I do think that the 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 removal statute needs like wholesale reform. It, like tweaking it just to bring in federal former federal officials is, is probably not the answer because I think it's just kind of very cumbersome and, and doesn't make a lot of sense as some of the doctrine has been applied by essentially requiring people to put their case on before they get removed. And I, I just I think that it's going to be it's going to require a lot of, of thoughtful, um, you know, uh, deliberation in order to get it right and to fix it. But I, I, I don't think we'll see any fixes anytime soon. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks to uh, Anthony, our special guest. Come back and join us again. Thanks to you all um, and uh, to Anna Bauer from the encyclopedia room of her palatial mansion. And we will see you. We will be off next week, uh, but we will see you the following week. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, and this time it is produced in cooperation with Anna Hickey of Lawfare, who was our stellar audio engineer. Hey folks, you can ask questions on Lawfare Trump Trials and Tribulations. You can do it by becoming a material supporter of Lawfare. I know you want to. Go to lawfaremedia.org slash support, sign up, join the Zoom, and have your questions answered live. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the one, the only, Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, who texted me the other day telling me she's coming to Washington to visit family, so I'm going to see her on Sunday very excited about it. And as always, thanks for listening.